Well, good morning, and thanks for joining us today at New City Church. Um, I want to begin with a story of a couple who were uh, married, and their birthdays were close together. And so every year they would celebrate together. Uh, this particular year, they were celebrating their 60th birthday. And so as you can imagine, it was quite the party, quite the ordeal. And uh, it just so happens on the day that they designated they were going to go out for a really nice meal, and they were going to celebrate their 60th birthday together, that an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and he told them that he was going to grant them a special request, each of them, on their 60th birthday. And so his, the wife gets really excited to start out with. She's super excited. And she says that her request is that her and her husband could travel the world together in their old age. And so uh, poof, and as soon as, as soon as the smoke clears, she has airline tickets and hotel reservations all over the world. And then the, the husband is kind of looking at his wife in shame. His head is kind of hung low, and she kind of looks at her and looks up at the angel and looks at her again and looks down, looks up at the angel one more time. And, and then he says, um, my special request is that I be married to a woman 30 years younger than me. And poof, as soon as the smoke clears, he was 90 years old. Now, here's why I share that story is today, uh, we're going to read a story of where Jesus is explaining who he is, and he's going to explain how to experience the kingdom of God. And he's talking to a religious leader who uh, is not going to fully understand what exactly Jesus is saying. And here's what I want to start with this morning. I uh, don't want that to be true for you or for me this morning. That I don't want for us sometime in the future, maybe 30 years for us from now, uh, for us to figure this out. I want us for today to know the good news of God's love for you and how you can receive it now, not for some unscheduled date in the future. That's what this text is about this morning. And so if you have a Bible, will you join with me and turn to John chapter 3? John chapter 3, if you don't have a Bible, there'll be a black one around you. And if you don't own one, you can take one of those black ones home. Now, John is one of the gospels of Jesus, the stories of Jesus. Last week, we looked at John chapter 2, which was Jesus's first miracle. We explained what that meant and how it uh, kind of showed who he was. Uh, today, he's going to have his first conversation in the gospel of John, where he is going to articulate and share who he is. Uh, he's going to be talking to a religious leader named Nicodemus, and here's what it says. John chapter 3, starting in verse 1, it says this. There was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Now, as part of the Pharisees, it's helpful to know the Pharisees were just one sect of Judaism. So there's, it's not apples to apples comparisons, but today, you know, there's different denominations and networks of churches, all Christians, all following Jesus, but they might emphasize certain theologies or doctrines or maybe be uh, uh, split by geographical locations. And so Phariseeism or the Pharisees, the sect of the Pharisees was one of various sects of Judaism. Now, it's helpful to know, we actually have good reason, we won't get into it this morning, uh, to believe that Jesus's parents actually followed in that tradition of Judaism. This is why Jesus interacts with the Pharisees more than, or one of the reasons why he interacts with the Pharisees more than anyone else. And so Nicodemus is a leader in his community. He's a Pharisaical leader who would have been a leader in his Jewish community. And he is intrigued by Jesus's teachings. What's interesting here is he does not appear to be hostile towards Jesus. Many times we'll see in the Gospels that the Pharisees or the religious leaders come to Jesus because they're trying to test him. That's not the case here. He is actually genuinely intrigued by Jesus, even if he's not quite sure who Jesus actually is. And so then it says this, verse 2, This man, Nicodemus, came to him at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. 
For no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with him. Now, it's, it's interesting here. Why does Nicodemus go to Jesus at night? Is it because he doesn't want to be seen with Jesus, interacting with him in a friendly man, man, uh, manner? Uh, is it because that this night is supposed to uh, show us some spiritual darkness that Nicodemus has? I think the Gospel of John probably is a mixture of both of those. I think it is a factual detail. But there's other parts in the Gospel of John where night is supposed to kind of convey a spiritual darkness. And so he goes to Jesus at night, and he's intrigued by his miracles. Now, in the Gospel of John, we've only seen one miracle so far. It's the, 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 the turning of water into wine in John chapter 2. But at the end of John chapter 2, we are told that Jesus has done many other signs and miracles. And of course, not everything Jesus said and did was recorded in the Gospels. And so clearly by this point, Jesus has done probably more than just one miracle. Nicodemus has either seen or he's heard about these things, and so he is interested. He says this idea that, they, that you seem to come from God, right? It doesn't mean that he, that he thinks Jesus is the Messiah or the Savior, because as we're going to see, he doesn't. But he's open to the possibility that this man is somehow endowed with God's power, and he's a, and a faithful teacher. Otherwise, why would he have the ability to do the things that he is doing? And so he wants to find out. And here's what Jesus says, verse 3. Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born again... He cannot see the kingdom of God. How can anyone be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? Jesus answered, truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now here's what's interesting about Jesus' reply. Formally, if you read these first couple of verses, Nicodemus actually has not asked Jesus a question. He hasn't asked Jesus anything. He's just kind of interested about who he is. However, um, verse, he, he's likely implying a question in verse 2. But basically, he's, he, what he's saying when he's kind of approaching Jesus is this. Like, who are you then, right? You're doing all these things. Are you more than a mere teacher? Are you a prophet? Do you think yourself a Messiah? Why is it you're doing the things that you're doing? And so this is why Jesus replies as he does. In other words, Nicodemus claims he can, see, he can see something special about Jesus, or at least he's trying to see something about Jesus and his miracles and what he's done so far. And Jesus was responding to him by saying, here is what must take place for you or for anyone to really see. So you've seen me do some things. Let me explain to you what it means to really see who I am. Now, what's also, I think, worth knowing here is that in verse 3, when Jesus says, unless someone is born again, it comes from the Greek word onathan, which can mean from above or again. So the, the Greek word onathan can mean be born again, like literally from a person, or it could, be being, it could be be born above, from heaven or from the heavenlies. And so the question there is, is, he, is Jesus talking about literally someone being reborn? Or is he saying that this birth that you must go, in, go through, should it, does it need to come from above? Does it need to come from God? Now, it's worth knowing in John chapter 1, in the beginning of John 1, it talks about how Jesus has always existed. And in verse 13, it says, we are given the right to become children of God by being born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. Right? Even in John chapter 1, there seems to be this idea of rebirth, and it seems to be that it has to come from God. And so Jesus here seems to be pointing towards the understanding of his expression, not be that you must be born again from somebody, but that you must be born from above, 
But clearly, as we're reading here, Nicodemus takes it as be, mean being born again. He takes the more literal uh, uh, possibility from Jesus. If you were with us last week, we looked at the miracle of the water into wine, uh, how Jesus responds to his mom in a way that might seem interesting or like doesn't quite make sense. And that you, we, we see that Jesus often is answering things in a deeper way, way than people are asking. This is the same thing that's happening here. But Nicodemus takes it as you must be like reborn from a person, which is like, how is this possible? Like he's confused. But yet Jesus responds in verse five by saying this new birth requires being born of water and spirit. Now there's debate here. I just want to say, I am persuaded that the best way to understand what Jesus means here when he says you must be born of water and spirit is this. So there are many times in the Old Testament where, where the writers were looking forward to a time when God's spirit would be poured out on all humankind. And also many times in the Old Testament, water, when it was used in a figurative sense, it refers to a renewal or a cleansing, especially when it is used in conjunction with God's spirit. Now, I know I'm saying a lot there, but just remember, Nicodemus and Jesus are like swimming in the Old Testament. They know this stuff. And so water and spirit would have been a connection that Nicodemus would have made quickly. Let me just give you one of many examples you see. So in the Old Testament, uh, the prophet Ezekiel writes this, talking about a future time when God is going to redeem his people. He says, I will also sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will place my spirit within you. So when Jesus is talking about this rebirth, this water and the spirit, he's talking about this time when God is going to put it, pour out his spirit among his people. And if Nicodemus was like many of the other Pharisees, other religious leaders, he was likely also really confident in himself and his own ability and his understanding of the law and his obedience to the scriptures and his adherence to the law, that to him, this idea of repentance is something he would be familiar with, but it wouldn't necessarily be something that he thinks he needed or would need to do, right? If he is a teacher of the law, if he is a follower of the law, why would he need a rebirth? Why would he need some sort of repentance? Because he's already following God. You, you can see how this is kind of confusing to Nicodemus. Why are you telling this to me when I'm already doing the things I'm supposed to do? And what Jesus is really saying to Nicodemus and us, one of the things he's saying in this text is this, that the kingdom of God is for anyone who would repent and believe. What Nicodemus is telling, uh, what Jesus is telling Nicodemus and what he is telling us as readers is that the kingdom of God is not just for you or for the good people or for the law-abiding Pharisees. It is for anyone. And the way to experience it is to repent and believe in Jesus. Now, now here's where I think we can um, miss, miss what's going on. Okay, um, It is easy for us, I think, uh, to judge these religious leaders uh, for assuming that they've got it all figured out. And so therefore, they don't need to repent and believe. Like we kind of read these stories, the religious leaders as like they're hypocrites. Like they figure they've got everything out, but they actually have these issues in their own lives. And, and so we say, well, how arrogant of them to not know that they also have issues that they need to repent of. And so, I mean, if you're tempted to think of that, if I'm tempted to think that, here's a question I think we should ask ourselves. What do you right now need to repent of to God in your own life? And are you willing to do it? Like, can you actually say, here's where I've fallen short. Here's where I have sinned. Not like I just made a mistake, but I've willfully gone my own way. And are you actually yourself willing to repent to God for that? Because if you are not, you and I are just like 
Jesus. While you might not consider yourself maybe religious or a religious leader, the same reasons that many Pharisees reject Jesus, we can reject Jesus, right? We reject Jesus when we don't actually think we need him, right? We think I'm good enough on my own or other people are worse than me or I, I, I'm a pretty good person. And so that is the same posture. I don't need to submit my life to Jesus because yeah, maybe I'm not perfect, but I'm good enough on my own. That's the same posture that a Pharisee might take. Why would I need to do these extra things when I'm already following the law? It kind of makes me think like, like, so Christine and I, she is uh, a lot quicker to uh, apologize and is a lot more willing to apologize when something goes wrong than I am. Now, the reality is, some people are laughing. You didn't know that. Okay, come on. Um, here's the thing. I can, I could uh, hide behind the excuse that it is just naturally hard for me to apologize. I could say, well, I'm just bad at apologizing, and, so, and she's just better at it. Uh, and so that's kind of my excuse as to why I don't do it or don't do it as well or as enough or as quickly maybe as I should. And while that might be true, I, it might be hard for me to do that, here's reality. It is still wrong for me not to repent or to ask for forgiveness. Like, it's still wrong, regardless of the motivations or whatever. It is still wrong if and when I do not do so. And I think the same thing is true for us and for Jesus, that we only ask forgiveness from God through Christ if we think we need it. We're not going to ask for forgiveness if we think we don't. And so while we, again, might not be a Pharisee, might not be a religious leader, it is the same posture. Why would I need to repent and ask forgiveness if I'm a pretty good person on my own? And so here, with Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus, you have someone who doesn't quite understand what Jesus is talking about, or if he does understand, he doesn't, he doesn't see why he needs to be born again. Maybe other people do, but why would I? Like, I'm already following in the law and the, and the prophets. And so verse 6, Jesus continues by saying this, uh, whatever is born of the flesh is flesh. And whatever is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases, and you hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. What Jesus is saying here, again, Nicodemus is confused. He's thinking about like a physical rebirth from like going back into your mom's room. He's like, that's not possible. What Jesus in response is saying essentially is that like generates like. So flesh and humans give birth to flesh and humans. And by the way, flesh in the New Testament is often synonymous with sinful desires. Like when we live into our flesh, we live into the things that we might want, even if they're not honoring to God. And so, therefore, here's what Jesus says. You must be born of the Spirit to experience God's kingdom, right? That we need God's Spirit to move over us. So, the word wind here that's translated from the Greek and English as wind can also mean spirit. That we need God's wind, we need God's breath, or we need God's Spirit to move into our lives and to draw us to Him. And so, what's also worth knowing that was when Jesus says you, so in verse 8 and following, when he's talking to Nicodemus, he's saying you, um, it's actually a plural you. So, we don't really have like a plural you that, that's actually grammatically correct in English. One of the things that's difficult when you read the New Testament, when you read like especially the letters, when it talks about you, you know, God's love for you or the fact that you need to repent, all these things, we think, we read it in an individualistic way. In the Greek, it's actually a plural way. In fact, what you could do, we're in the South, so maybe this is easy for you. Um, it's most often easiest to think of the word you in the New Testament as y'all, 
right? So, and I'm serious here, right? Whenever you read you, you should read it as y'all, and then you get the communal sense that the scriptures are actually written in. So while he's talking to Nicodemus here, what Jesus is saying is not just for Nicodemus individually, it's for y'all. It's for Nicodemus, it's for the Pharisees, it's for the Jews, it is for everyone. And what's happening here is that no matter how good Nicodemus's Jewish credentials are, no matter how, much, how many degrees he has or how much of the scripture he has memorized or how well he follows it, um, maybe in our context, no matter how eco-friendly you are or generous you are or how tolerant you might think you are, we all must be born of the spirit to enter the kingdom of God that you cannot experience this on your own. Whatever we think makes us good enough, and maybe some of those things are really good. Like I'm not saying it's wrong to be eco-friendly or to be loving and caring for other people. Those things are good, but that is not what redeems you. Right? We need the spirit and God's water and his spirit to move over us, to draw him to himself. We need somebody outside of ourself and our own effort to make this possible, which leads Nicodemus to respond to Jesus by saying this in verse nine. He says, how can these things be? Asked Nicodemus, again, how can it be possible that I need the spirit and God's, you know, repentance to move over me when I'm actually already like following the law? Like, how am I supposed to get God's spirit uh, to make me born again? How is this possible? Asked Nicodemus, verse 10, Jesus says this. I think this is great. He says, are you a teacher of Israel and don't know these things? Jesus replied. So what's interesting here is if what is Jesus, if, if what Jesus is saying is true, then how can this be? How can it be possible for us to experience this? And how can one be born of the Spirit? And how does Nicodemus not understand this? This is Jesus' point. Now, again, if you're Nicodemus, if you put yourself in his shoes for just a second, just remember, for years, Nicodemus has has taught and was taught um, that the, the, the the, the conditions in order to experience acceptance into God's kingdom was by following the laws and the commands of scripture and honoring God. Like that's what, if you do those things, you'll be entered and you'll be welcome into his kingdom. And yet now he's talking to Jesus who seems to be a good guy. He's doing all these miracles that people can't quite explain. And he's coming here and now he's saying that something else is needed. Like you, you can see why Nicodemus is confused. Like I've been doing all these things I'm supposed to do and you're here telling me I need to do something else. Like how is that possible? But what Jesus' response here is that what he is saying isn't actually new. Jesus is, I don't, I don't know if it's frustration, but Jesus is kind of like, hey, aren't you seeing this? Is because he's saying, you should know this. And this is important to understand, okay? Because we can get this wrong maybe today in our, in our modern understanding when we read scripture, that Jesus did not come to start a new religion. He didn't do that. Uh, in fact, if you were to read, even the writers in the New Testament, if you were to tell them, hey, we've got this new religion called Christianity, they would be confused. I'm not saying it's wrong to kind of distinguish, you know, Christian teaching from just following the Old Testament. Jesus. I'm not saying that's wrong, but they in their mind, Jesus in his mind is actually here not to start something new. He actually came to fulfill what the Old Testament scriptures were actually teaching and pointing towards. And Nicodemus is missing it. It's kind of like he's saying, Nicodemus, you're the reverend, you're the doctor, you're the pastor guy. How can you not come and see that I'm fulfilling what scripture actually taught? How can you not understand what Jesus, what he is telling him? That people need a new heart and a new spirit when it's all throughout the Hebrew Bible. And so what this was, we say this a lot in New City, but it's just worth pointing out here again, that scripture is a unified story that leads to Jesus. 
That's why Jesus responds to Nicodemus as he does. It is a unified story that leads to him. Now, again, if you come to New City, you've been here with us for a while, this is not maybe a new point for you, but this is a completely foundational way to understand the Bible correctly. That Jesus didn't come to create some new religion. He didn't say the Old Testament was bad or the law was outdated because, by the way, he followed it to the T. He was perfectly sinless. But what he's saying is, I'm coming to bring it to its fulfillment, right? Part of the law, part of the point of the law was to show us that we cannot make it to God on our own, that we all have fallen short. Even if you're not quite sure about this Jesus thing, we would all say whatever your standard of morality is, all of us would say, hey, I've even done things that I would say are wrong. So all of us have fallen short and he has come to bring it to fulfillment. In fact, all the way back in Genesis, which we spent a lot of time here this year at, that he is saying, even in Genesis 3, that God was going to send someone that, so that all the nations could be blessed through him and by his fulfillment because we cannot attain or become perfect on our own. In fact, the Christmas story that we celebrate in this season is that God, not our effort, not our promises to do better in the future, but God came and dwelt among us. That is what we celebrate, that Jesus came to do for us what we could not do on our own, that he is not a mere prophet, that he is not a mere moral example of what love looks like, but that he is God in the flesh who has come. It's kind of like when you understand this, that the scripture is a unified story that leads to Jesus, that he's bringing it to its fulfillment. It's kind of like when you watch a movie or a show for the second time. And you can make these connections that you missed the first time because you really understand what it was pointing towards. Uh, I'm about, maybe I'm about to give a spoiler alert for two movies, but I feel like if a movie's like two decades old or more, it's kind of like on you if you haven't seen it. Um, but like the movie The Sixth Sense, like you watch The Sixth Sense and then you realize the guy was dead the whole time. And then you're like, you're like, now I just want to say, I've never seen The Sixth Sense either. Part of it's because I kind of, I was told this was going to happen. So I'm like, I'm like, well, the, the, you know, the tension's gone. But when you watch the movie and you realize you're dead, if you rewatch the movie, everything that happens, like it makes a lot more sense. Or like another uh, movie is Fight Club. Again, I haven't seen it because like I kind of know it was going to happen. But you have the main character, Jack, and he has this alter ego named Tyler. And then you find out that Tyler wasn't actually real. Like he wasn't actually there. And so if you rewatch that movie, you're like, oh my goodness, that this happened, I see this. This makes so much more sense. This is what Jesus is essentially saying to Nicodemus. If you actually read and understand the scriptures correctly, you'll see what I'm saying is not some new thing, but it actually makes sense. It's not that it's, maybe it's hard to understand or to believe, or it might be challenging for you. That could happen, but I'm not making this up out of thin air. I'm, I'm, a, I'm fulfilling what God has always promised. And then he says this in verse 11. Jesus continues, truly, I tell you, we speak what we know and we testify to what we have seen. Now, all these yous, I'm just going to read it as y'all, okay? So that way we can understand the collective nature of scripture. He says, but y'all do not accept our testimony. He's talking about the Pharisees, religious leaders, and even many people who are kind of going to reject Jesus. If I have told y'all about earthly things and y'all don't believe, how will y'all believe if I tell y'all about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who had descended from heaven, the son of man. 
So Jesus continues. He's kind of still explaining things to Nicodemus. And he says, you haven't accepted my teaching so far. Now, it's kind of confusing. Earthly things here uh, likely refers to Jesus' teachings about new life or new regeneration here in this life and on earth in the present that takes place here on earth as we follow Jesus. He's basically saying, if you can't understand that, when I'm talking to you about this idea of spiritual rebirth here and now, then how, and these are the kind of the more elementary teachings of me, then how can I explain the deeper things of you, the things from heaven? If you can't get this foundational, uh, foundational principle, then how can I explain even more? And in fact, in a, in a not so subtle way to Nicodemus, Nicodemus would have caught this, he explains how he knows these things. So he's going to explain to Nicodemus, here is how I have the authority to show you or to teach to you what I am explaining. He says, I can speak of these things because not because I was on earth and then went to heaven for a time, you know, for a while, then came back and kind of reveal like all the things that I learned from heaven or in God's kingdom. He says, the reason I can tell you these things is because I am the one who came from heaven. That my origin was not when I was born, you know, some 30-ish years ago when he was talking to Nicodemus, but I have existed, as it says in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, which is Jesus. The Word was God, and the Word, uh, everything was created through him. Apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In John chapter 1, he has always existed. I know these things because I literally created the world. He is the one who has come from heaven. That's how I know. Now, I don't have time, but I just want to say this briefly. Jesus refers to the Son of Man in verse 13. Now, the Son of Man is Jesus' most used designation about himself. So he refers to himself as the Son of Man more than any other title in the Gospels. Now, this comes from the second half of the book of Daniel. So many of us, Christian or not, are probably familiar with the first six chapters of Daniel because it's like Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the fast, like all these things. And then Daniel 7 through 12, the second half, is about all these prophecies about the end time, which are super confusing, okay? But part of what takes place in the second half of Daniel is that you have this Son of Man, who is depicted at sitting at the right hand of the Father, and he does all of these divine things. And so what Jesus is saying, if he is the son of man that Daniel talks about in the second half of his book, then this is how he knows. Because I've always existed. I'm the one who sits at the right hand of the Father, and so I can explain to you in fulfillment, in totality, what the scriptures are pointing to. He then gives another example. It says this in verse 14, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up so that everyone, not just some people or the good people or the people who say the right things or dress the right way or act the right way, but that everyone who believes in him, whoever this son of man is, may have eternal life. Now, I want to say this. I know maybe it's a little confusing here, but this, this Moses reference that he's referring to, again, Nicodemus would have picked up on this. Um, it's a reference to the time when the Israelites were traveling from Egypt into the promised land. And there was this, at one point, they were, God sent a, essentially a plague of snakes to affect the Israelites because they were grumbling, they were complaining, they were worshiping false gods, they were doing all these things. And so he sends these snakes, people get bit by these snakes, some people start dying. And then he takes, because of their disobedience, so then he, God tells Moses to take this bronze snake and put it on a pole and that anyone who would come and see, this is important for what's happening here, anyone who would come and see the snake would be healed. Even if they like did all these terrible things and they blasphemed from God, if they were bitten by snakes and they were suffering, if they would go and look upon the snake, they would be healed. Why Jesus uses that example to explain who he is, is that in the same way that those who look on, in other words, how this whole conversation started, those who truly see Jesus for who he is, that, that he is the son of man, and they believe, will be given access to God 
and eternal life. Just like the Israelites looked upon the snake and were healed, those who look upon and truly see Jesus for who he is will be healed. And if Jesus, again, is the Son of Man, then it is through him that spiritual birth is given. And so, therefore, we should trust his teachings. Now, again, Nicodemus began by saying that he recognized Jesus was a teacher who has come from God. He thinks there's something unique about Jesus. But at this point, he doesn't understand him, as Jesus talks about in verse 12. And nor does he believe in him that he is the Son of Man, as he talks about in verse, 12, or verse 10 and verse 12. At least not yet. In other words, Jesus' point here is like, you see me as like a person, but you're not truly seeing me. And what Jesus is trying to get across to Nicodemus and to us, I think, is this, that the kingdom of God is for anyone who recognizes their need. It's not for the good people, again, the people who behave a certain way, the people who do certain things. It is for anyone who recognizes their need, whether you consider yourself religious or not. Again, if we do not see our need for Jesus, whether you are religious or not, you and I are in the same position of the Pharisees. We think we are good enough on our own, and so we do not need him. Then, therefore, we do not actually see him for who he is. The kingdom of God is for anyone who recognizes their need. Now, this is the backdrop to one of, if not the most famous passage of Scripture in the entire Bible. Whether you're a Christian or not, maybe the first time in church ever or not, you have heard this verse. This is the context behind what Jesus then says to Nicodemus in, chapter, in verse 16. He says this, For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son, so that ever, whoever, everyone rather, who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. His first coming was not to condemn, but was to save, but to save the world through him. 18, anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only son of God. Now, there's a, a lot you could say here. I just want to focus on one thing. In John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one only son, whoever believes in him shall not perish or have eternal life. Whatever the translation is you're familiar with, that's essentially what he's saying. What's interesting about this verse and what's easy for us as modern readers to miss, what would have been significant to the first century Jews who heard this. Um, what's about this, God's love for the world in particular is, or per, in particular is, is peculiar. Why should I use words that are too similar? What, what's so significant about this verse is God loving the world is significant, but not for the reason that you and I might think. Uh, for one, Jews, like Nicodemus, were familiar with the idea that God loved the children of Israel. Of course he loved him. He called them. He chose them. They are his people who were supposed to be a light to the world. But the fact that God would love the world and all those people who clearly reject you, that would be kind of scandalous. Of course you loved me. Of course you love the Israelites, but you're saying you love the world. Those people who uh, misbehave and do bad things and believe other gods and who reject you, why would you love them? In fact, in the New Testament, the word cosmos, which is what we have translated as world here, was typically framed in a negative light. Just like the flesh was typically used synonymously as a bad thing, the world in the New Testament is also used synonymously with bad things. Like it's not supposed to be something that followers of Jesus love. We're in the world. We love the people who live in the world, but we're not supposed to love the world. It is often uh, synonymous as a wicked or a bad thing. It's synonymous with selfishness and idolatry. So we're not supposed to love the world, yet Jesus says that he loves the world. The question then is, 
What is happening and why is he saying this? What's happening in this conversation with Nicodemus, again, this would have been a radical idea for him, is that he's saying that Jesus is showing us that God's love is restricted not by ethnicity, so Israel alone, and beyond that, that his love is astounding, not because the world is big and therefore includes a lot of people. I think that we think this verse is kind of cool because like there's a lot of people, now there's like 8 billion plus people around. That's a lot of people to love, right? God must have a big heart. That's not what's astounding about this verse. It's not that the world is big and therefore includes a lot of people, but it is because the world is bad and full of evil and us doing our own thing, yet he still loves us is what makes this so scandalous. In other words, it's not the amount of people that's the big deal, but it is the type of people that God loves that is a big deal. It's the type of people, sinners who have gone their own way, yet he still loves us. That anyone who would trust in the Son of Man, whether you're a law-abiding Pharisee, as in the example here for Nicodemus, or not, anyone can be born of water and spirit and be welcomed into God's kingdom. Again, this is why God came to dwell among us. He came to invite us in. In other words, if I could sum up what, what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, even for us, it's important for us to not just hear, but actually believe, and that's this. The kingdom of God is made up of people whom God loves. The kingdom of God is made up of people whom God loves. It's not that he just tolerates them. Um, it's not that he just puts up with them. Uh, it's not that he is annoyed with them, but that he loves us. And I think today, if you're a follower of Jesus, right? If you're a follower of Jesus, you kind of think, well, he's supposed to love me. Uh, he, he says that he loves me, but like if he, you know, he doesn't actually love me. Or like he kind of likes me, but like when I do this, he's angry with me or he's mad with me or he is annoyed. But it's actually made up of people who he loves. Not who he tolerates, not he, who he wishes would do better, but who he loves. Now, I want to say this because I think this is a hang up for many of us. I think it's thing for many of us, um, that we want God who loves us, or we want God to be willing to forgive us, yet we're not sure if he wants to or if he can. Like, we're not sure if he actually wants to or if he actually can. Especially if you think about, man, all the things I've done, after all I've done, right, after all I've said, that he actually loves me. Now, here's what's interesting. We are not told Nicodemus's response to Jesus here. So we, we're going to stop here at verse 18. He says a few other things to Nicodemus, but that we're not given a response, so we're not told at all what Nicodemus thinks. Like, is Nicodemus moved? Um, is he angry? Is he confused? Is he a mixture of things? We don't know, but we do know that he doesn't respond in faith. Like, we're not told that he then therefore trusts Jesus and gives his life to him. And as much as Jesus maybe seemingly rebukes Nicodemus here, here's what we know. Jesus wants the same thing for him. That Jesus actually wants Nicodemus to come and trust and follow him. How do we know that? Well, you might not know this, but Nicodemus uh, makes two more appearances in John's gospel. This is not the first and only time he's there. Next time we read about Nicodemus is in John chapter 7. I'm not going to read it, but John chapter 7, there's this meeting of, of, of high-ranking religious officials who are debating the claims of Jesus. Now, Jesus is not there, but they're, they're angry with Jesus, and they're basically trying to figure out a way to, like, get him in trouble. And Nicodemus speaks up, and he essentially says, hey, he, he says, let's not judge Jesus too quickly. That's like a paraphrase of what he's saying. Now, this is significant because in this meeting of these religious people, he gains nothing by defending Jesus. And if anything, he kind of hurts his credibility among them. But he's like, hey, let's, maybe let's not judge too quickly. He still seems intrigued. 
And then the second time we see Nicodemus in John's gospel happens after a pretty well-known event in John chapter 19. In John chapter 19, Jesus is crucified. And then after he, then Nicodemus, after Jesus' crucifixion on that Friday, Friday afternoon, he joins Joseph of Arimathea, who was not Jesus' father, but he was also a religious leader. The New Testament says this Joseph guy was a secret disciple of Jesus. So he was a follower of Jesus. He joins Nicodemus in burying Jesus' body. So uh, uh, or Nicodemus rather joins Joseph in burying his body. So Joseph goes to Pilate, the, the kind of the authority of the region, and says, hey, we want to take down Jesus' body because it was the Sabbath night. And as soon as Friday evening, the Sabbath approaches, you can't do anything for 24 hours. And so they want his body to be buried before then. So he goes, he pleads, he gets Jesus' body. And Nicodemus goes and gets all the aloes and spices to honor him. It says this, John 19, it says this, Nicodemus and check this out, who had previously come at to him at night, this is a reference to what we read today, John 3, also came, bringing a mixture of about 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. They took Jesus' body and wrapped it in linen cloths and the fragrant spices according to the burial custom of the Jews. Now, just, just worth pointing out, 75 pounds was a lot a lot, even in that time. That's not what you typically did. You would only do that if you really thought this person was special. Not only does he help bury Jesus, not only does he get all of these spices and aloes, it says that he does it during the day, right? So if night in John chapter 3, which I think it is, is also meant to point to Nicodemus's spiritual darkness previously, well, now he's being seen with Jesus, or at least Jesus' body, during the day because they want to bury him before the Sabbath started at nightfall. I think the implication here in John 19 is that Nicodemus has come into the light. The religious leader who thought he had it all figured out, who did not think he needed to be born of the spirit and water, who did not think he needed Jesus, realized, no, I am a sinner too. And so again, as, as we close today, that's the invitation for you and for me to accept the love of God given through his son, right, the son of man, given to us by the cross and his resurrection, made possible, all made possible by him coming as a baby in Bethlehem over 2,000 years ago. The kingdom of God is made up of people not whom God tolerates, not who God puts up with, but whom God loves, warts and all. And so we have one or two responses. Man, if you're here watching online, you're not quite sure about this Jesus thing, your invitation is to trust and believe. Not 30 years from now, not a three months from now, not next week, not Christmas morning, today. To trust and believe that Jesus has done everything possible for you in the midst of your sin and your shame and your doubts. He's done everything possible for you because he loves you. And he wants you to repent and believe and take part in his kingdom. And listen, we'd love to be a church that walks alongside you with that. Listen, if you want to take that step of faith, uh, what Jesus also commands us to do is to get baptized. I just want to like, let you guys know about this. We have a baptism Sunday coming up in next month, January 21st. We're going to baptize people who have trusted and believed in Jesus. I want to say this. If you're a follower of Jesus and you have not yet been baptized, I do not think that you will go wherever he asks you to go and do what he ever asks you to do if you do not do the one thing that he actually commands followers of him to do, which is to get baptized. So it doesn't save you, but it is a public declaration of what Christ has done for me. If you're interested in baptism, you can check baptism on the back of the Connect card, or you can text NCC Baptism, all one word, to 97,000. If you want to let people know about the redeeming Christ, the grace of Jesus you've experienced. For the rest of us who are followers of Jesus, and we may be used to this idea that God loves us. First of all, do you actually know that he actually loves you? Again, to put up with you, doesn't like, uh, roll your eye. He loves you. 
And if this is true, the question for you and for me is this, who in my life needs to know this? Who in my life needs to know this? I, I'm not trying to pressure anybody next Saturday, we're meeting Saturday at five o'clock, Christmas Eve Eve. Kids, it's the easiest time of year to invite somebody. It's non-threatening. It's, we're gonna sing songs that everybody knows. We're gonna, be, we're gonna hear a couple of, of videos that are gonna be encouraging and helpful. And we're just gonna talk about the goodness of Jesus in the midst of even maybe a, a hard time for people. That Jesus came to love people. Who in your life have you not been uh, honest with? Have you, have you not shared the love of Jesus with that needs to know today that he loves them just like he loves you?